This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Hold True Tattoo Studios. The new studio is now open in Hamilton, and if you're interested in getting any tattoo work done or discussing any designs, please contact the chief artist, Brian Bell. You can find Hold True Tattoo Studios on Instagram and on Facebook, so if you're at all interested, please check them out. Lee Sanson, sir, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? Really, really good. And all the better for seeing you, Kareem, after all these years. It's been, it's been a long time, sir. Uh, there's, so much that, there's so much that I've written down in, in the notes for today's podcast. And I, I think, we'll just, I think what's, what's a good idea to do is just to touch on a number of subjects, if that's okay, because... That's great, yeah. There's a, there's a number of areas in your life that are just so so interesting. Uh, and I know you've, I think you mentioned when we were chatting that you've got a book hopefully coming out next year, or is it this year? Yeah, I've got a book coming out next year, uh, Kareem, and um, I'm working with um, a top international uh, best-selling writer, um, and that's going to be coming out, I'm not sure when next year, and there's no rush for it, so... Um, I think the I think the market forces will dictate when it goes out. So um, actually putting a, a book uh, to market is quite a, a difficult thing, as I know and learning. So I think just the timing is the thing with a book, which I didn't realise uh, that they're going to really try and pick the timing for it. And uh, so whenever they say they press the button to go, and I'm really excited about it, uh, the book coming out. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. The, I'll, I'll tell you what. I... <laughs> I'll tell you what I've written down. I've written down eighth degree black belt. I've written down former military police officer, uh, private security specialist, international bodyguard. Uh, wow. the, the list, the list goes on. And you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something funny before I pass over to yourself and we talk through your story. Okay. Uh, I always like, I always like the conversations to be nice and relaxed, and one thing that I never want to do is put anybody ever on the spot. So, one of the, <laughs> I'm laughing already, one of the questions I always ask is, and I asked you the same question when we were chatting, is there anything that I, you wouldn't like me to ask or cover? And, and you said to me, you said, listen, if there's anything that I don't want to talk about, don't worry, you won't know about it. <laughs> once we once, uh, once I'd finished chatting to yourself, I said to Tracy, my wife, I said, I told her what you'd said, and I said, I wish I was cool enough to say things like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's funny. That's funny, yeah. And I, I don't mean to be like, you know, double or seven or anything, but, um, but no. some of the stuff I've done, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not worth talking about anyway, so, you know. No, but I, I can just talk about the best bits. It, 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 was, it was a wee giggle that, that I had anyway. Right, so let's start off with, if we can, your, your martial arts journey. Now, I was trying to put together where it all sort of fell into place, but I think you were, you, you were in, involved in martial arts for quite a number of years before you even enrolled in the military. Is that, is that correct? Yes, yeah. Excuse me, Kareem. I've been... I've been on the phone all morning. My voice is uh, incredible. I'm, uh, the, the security industry at the moment is just taking off again. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to manage some projects in West Africa and on the Horn of Africa. And everybody wants it now. And I've, I've been on, on the go since five this morning. Um, you messaged me at the back of five, yeah? I did, yeah. So I'm, I'm losing my voice. So excuse me to all your listeners. I'm just, no problem, I'm just having a drink of coffee. No problem at all. Mm. I've got the water here myself. Yeah, so, um, so I started my martial arts career. When I first started my martial arts career, I think I was 12 or 13, uh, and I was bullied at school. And uh, <clears throat> I think it, it affected me psychologically quite badly, but I know it did. <clears throat> and nobody would think that, because, you know, I was a tallish guy, uh, come from a big house in this state, uh, uh, and... Uh, and 
you, you couldn't show weakness and you know it's you know what it's like on a big you know i think there's i think there's maybe fourteen thousand people on our housing estates a massive one in north manchester and uh, i went to a karate club because i thought if i could learn karate i'm gonna be able to be tough and then this bully this one lad i'm gonna be able to um stop him doing it and yeah. i used to dread going to school and i'd make up excuses not to go to school and all the rest of it real fear in me and i went to the bake up karate club which was known as a fighting club at the time they did kata or forms and all that kind of stuff yeah, yeah. but uh, the, the fighting was a big thing that they did <clears throat> and i went there and the instructor one of the instructors was called walter and he didn't stop for long, but I remember on my first, first night, no, second night, I went once and it backfired on me because the bully, I'm not going to say his name on here, yep. he came to my classroom and seeked me out and said, so you're learning karate then, I guess you can fight and hit me. Wow, okay. And I thought, this isn't working, like I planned. So I went back to the karate club and, and Walter uh, had us. There was about four new people. You know what it's like when new people come in your, in your school. Yeah, yeah. And we were in some kind of front punch stance, traditional karate. Uh -huh. And he came up and he, and he said, tense yourself. And he punched me and he broke my ribs. Wow, okay. At that age. Yeah, yeah. And it was a rough and ready karate school. And I remember that night waking up, I didn't know what was happening to me, and I, I shuffled down the stairs on my backside, uh, crying. I couldn't breathe. And I, went, I remember going to my mum and dad who was watching telly, and I couldn't explain what it was. I didn't know. Went to the doctor, and I had broken ribs. Yeah. <clears throat> so that was my first experience in a karate school. Yeah. And uh, in the 1970s. And then I went back again when I was about 16. Uh, and I was getting a lot of trouble and this and that, as a young boy, young man does on, on a council estate. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the karate instructor, one of the other guns, Paul, he was called, Paul Armitage, he lived across the road from us and, and he had a conversation over the garden fence with my dad and kind of said, you better get your boys in before they start to go to prison like the rest of them, you know. Yeah. So we went down and, I, and we started and, and I got the bug pretty quickly, and pretty quickly, you know, uh, Kareem, I found out I could fight. Yeah. I could just do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and even then, I, was, I wasn't confident in this, by the way. I could just do it, and that gave me my confidence yeah. out on the street. And, uh, and eventually, at the time, we had, we had five fighting teams of five people. It was a big school. Yeah, yeah. And then I'd only been there maybe, it wasn't long, and I was on the A team, so I had four black belts and me as a white belt. Wow, okay. I could just do it. I yeah. just could naturally do it. I mean, my, my dad's dad was a top uh, boxer in Manchester. Had it not been for the war, so the family say, he would have been an international boxer. He was well known in Manchester. Oh. And we used to have people come around to the flat for my granddad, Ted, and he would go and fix people. Yeah, it was a different culture then. Yeah, um, but he but he didn't box because of the war. Because there were no yeah. boxing matches. All he went to the war and this that. Yeah. So that was so. Then I started uh, doing my karate, and then I just got into karate, Wallaroo style. Yeah, yeah. And I fought for the uh, for the British Wallaroo team, and then quickly went through. I fought for the uh, uh, one of the top Shukakai clubs at the time, Middleton Shukakai, one of the top teams in, in Europe. Yep. As well as my, so I, I fought for three schools at the time, Burnley, Bake Up, Mouth School and, and, and uh, Middle, Middleton. And, um, and then at that time, the, the freestyle sport karate came on the scene. Yeah. And that started taking over, which we now call kickboxing. Yeah, yeah. Which I never call kickboxing because it's not. <laughs> And that's the points. You got the points yeah, off. Of course, yeah. yeah. Result, and now they call it points kickboxing, a European phrase. But, but nevertheless, it is part of the kickboxing world now. And uh, and then um, I moved to South Africa uh, to work. 
a bit a young man at 21, and, and I left the international scene. And uh, I was destined to become like one of the top fighters there. I fought a guy called Alfie Lewis. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the best fighters in the world, and an awesome athlete. Yeah. And I fought him twice. Uh, I drew with him once, and he beat me once in extra time. Okay. So I was a new boy coming up, and I was like, wow, where's this kid come from? And, uh, and then I left to go to South Africa, and uh, apartheid was on then. Yeah. So, of course, there was no international fighting then. Although um, I got there and I went to a, a, a big karate club in, in Johannesburg. Uh-huh. And it was a massive school. I, I looked in, there must have been 30, 40 black belts training. In this back beautiful back then, that place. Was, that was a lot of black belts. Oh, it was massive. Uh, a very well known school, one of the best schools I think in South Africa. And I, I can't remember this guy, I think his second name was, was uh, Schmitz. I forget his first name. And I waited patiently outside. And I waited and waited and waited and waited. And I could see the head of the instructor. He was looking at me, but he didn't come over to me. And eventually he graced me with his presence. And I'm probably like really humble and and uh, you know, we bow and, and he says, Yeah, how can I help you? I said, Well, I've just come from the UK. I'd like to join your karate school. And then he lectured me how bad the UK was at karate and how they were great and we were crap. Um, <clears throat> and, and, and he really talked down to me. And I, anyway, I bowed and off I went. And I didn't go back. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't go back. And I thought, yeah, I wanted, I wanted to train, but I didn't want to train in that environment. But Karim, I knew how good I was. Yeah. I just fought a guy called Les Carr. Remember Les Carr, who used to do the, he was European champion at the time. He beat me just by one point. I was a new boy coming up, by the way. Yeah, of course. Anyway, so I went into a taekwondo school. Good choice. And, uh, <laughs> and I thought, when I come out, I'm going to have to burn my shoes. Because <laughs> at the time, taekwondo and karate, it was like that, wasn't it? Yeah, big time. Yeah, yeah. And it was really bad. Anyway, I went in, and I was welcomed with open arms. Yeah. And it was a guy called uh, Master Steve Brooks. There was a chap called Master Ricky Hart. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he, Master Ricky Hart sent him there uh-huh. to run South Africa, so they were very good friends. So I went in an amazing journey, and I ended up on the South African national team, and just so enjoyed my taekwondo, and uh, and I was quite, I was quite a good kicker. Yeah, um, I know that firsthand. Maybe we'll get that <laughs> well. I know that first time. <laughs> Carry on. And, uh, I, you know, I, I just liked it. I, I liked the family atmosphere, and I thoroughly enjoyed my taekwondo training there. And I came back and joined the military. So that's my, my in a nutshell, my martial arts experience yeah. before the military. Just, just since you, you, you brought that up, I always think the... And again, with all due respect, you were coming towards... What would have been the end of your after this is we're going to jump ahead a wee bit just for this wee story, but just uh, as you you would have you would have left the military by then, had your your school uh, in Elgin etc. But we all you were one of the one of the fighters who the sort of younger guys like myself would always anticipate, and this would have been the Wuma days. We, we always you always looked out and you thought, is he just here to coach today, or is he going to put the gear on? And then you would have been in my division at the time uh, because even as a, uh, in the master's division, you, I can remember this. Occasionally you would always drop down just to give us youngsters uh, a little bit of experience. And I remember, I remember competing against you once and it's, I'll never forget it because like all great fighters, I remember loving the experience of, of just being in the, the on the mats with you. And I remember you, you, you beating me very convincingly, but never hurting me once. And in point sparring competition, there's a lot to be said for that. Just be, through the, the, the control that you had and just the skill set that you had. You were only there to enjoy yourself. I know that. But to a younger guy like myself, it was, it was a huge honour to be just competing against you. But I always remember coming off sitting thinking, I've learned a lot just from that one match and have been thoroughly beaten, 
but you never hurt me once. And there's a lot to there's a lot to be said for, for that. So so thank you for that experience. Thank um, you so much. That's really that's really nice. And and, and you know what, Corinne? Yeah, it is. It's uh, you see a lot of um, uh, fighters, and and it and it is easy to take cheap shots, and it is easy to do that. And, and sometimes it's if you it's all to do with psychology as well, isn't it? What are you there to do? Yeah. Are you there to hurt people? Probably there to, to play the game because it is a game. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and inspire others. And if and if you're seen doing that, then the youngsters they follow that. Yeah. So we, we have a big responsibility to set an example to, to the young players in our sport as well. So that that's something that people do you know it, it's 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 one thing that the, 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 the top quality fighters, competitors never get mixed up and, and I would class you in that rank you never ever mix up the fact and it might be due to the professional experiences that you've had but you never mix up competing and fighting and there's a lot of people lower down in quality who who get the two of them mixed up and they're two very yeah. different things winning uh, winning a kickboxing or a or a taekwondo world championship is night and day to Rolling about the floor with somebody outside a nightclub in, in Glasgow or Manchester, or it's two yeah. completely different things. Uh, right, so let's move on a wee bit then to you're obviously coming back to the UK from South Africa, and it was the military police that you joined. Is that is, am I right there? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was Korean. Yeah, I joined the military police in 1985, and. Uh, I spent probably 10 of the best years of my life in, in the military and I got to experience a lot of different things. I had a great career and uh, I left um, in 1995. Is there, is there, can you talk a wee bit about just what different projects or experiences that you, you had in the military police, where you were based, etc.? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. I learned a lot about myself as well and I got in, uh, the training was in a place called Chichester, so mm -hmm. six months training at the time, uh, and I passed my training, my squad of 52, I think there was 12 of us passed out, and that was normal then, yep. the dropout rate was incredible, and um, it wasn't a nice experience to be quite honest, uh, but it was what it had to be at the time, and then I went to Germany, and I joined my field unit, we call it a field unit. We had a, a war roll as such at the time, the Cold War was on, of course. Yep, yep. Um, uh, it was uh, in a place called Semelaga, which is a massive NATO training area. And it was the busiest military police um, unit in the world. And it was busy because what we had in Semelaga, we had all the visiting NATO troops training. And then we had the British uh, elements of the troops that were there with us. We had a, a battle group, an infantry, a mechanised infantry battle group. So you had infantry battalions there. Mm -hmm. And then you had what we called uh, NITAP, which was the Northern Ireland Training okay. uh, uh, Centre there. So all the troops going out to Northern Ireland would go there for training. And the training was hard. Yeah. So all this is going on in this massive camp. Now, Friday and Saturday night, on the strip, 32 bars, four houses, the lot. Yeah, yeah. You can see what's going to happen, can't you? <laughs> so for a young, uh, a young fella who was quite handy with his with his skills, yeah, yeah. This was just like the best place to be in the world. <laughs> and and of course, in the military then, and I, and it is now, the, the 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 respect for the police, the military police, is different than you would get on the street here. Okay. So the, the, the military being the military, they're very disciplined people and, and the military police get a lot of stick yep, yep. From, from the army and it's a culture. But uh, because we have different roles in the military, not just policing roles, we have operational roles, airborne roles, commando roles, all sorts of roles. Um, um, and the work's quite diverse. So um, the respect from the, the average soldier is quite high. So 
when they're brawling and fighting and all the rest of it, which they would do on mass scale, uh, you know, and, and, and yeah, you'd get a bit as well yourself, but generally they, they would toe the line. Yeah. There was respect there. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I quite like that. So, uh, so that was my first posting in Germany. And uh, I got into my sport there. So I, I played uh, karate uh, international, well, nationally there for a massive German club. And I, uh, I played rugby, football, basketball. I was on the running team. This was like a, a, a kid in a sweet shop. Yep, yep. That I was just doing sport 24-7. And it was just an incredible experience. Um, and um, I left there and went to uh, Catrick. Okay, yep, yep. In North Yorkshire. And uh, I had a great tour, tour there. And then I went to a place called Tinworth, okay. which is down near Wiltshire. And I spent a really interesting time there with a special investigation branch of the military police. And uh, I'm responsible for serious crime and uh, uh, interrogation and all that kind of stuff. And it was really interesting. And, probably one of the hardest courses I've ever done in my life to get into the special investigation branch. Okay. Uh, and the process is, is, is really tough. And then um, I left there and went to Northern Ireland for two years. And I did some really interesting things out there in plain clothes and, and not, and worked for some different units out there, which, which, which was, um, I wrote some of my stories for in, in a couple of books that are out, and I've, um, I was, I'm part of a, a documentary which is on Netflix, no, not Netflix, History Channel. Okay, yeah. Uh, uh, so, some of the stuff I did there was, was really, really interesting, and it's called Soldier Stories, and the author of the books is a guy called Ken Wharton, a friend of mine, he lives in um, uh, Australia now, okay. and I went from there to Hong Kong, where I worked on the Chinese border. Yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> I wasn't actually in Hong Kong itself. I was on the border in, in the New Territories working with the, um, the Gurkhas. Very well. Okay. soldiers. So I, I was there with the 48 Gurkha Brigade. And then I came back uh, to England to another posting. And from there, uh, I left. What, what was... The what was Northern Ireland like? As uh, it was, it was obviously a, a. I don't again. You 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 can correct me, but it, it was obviously a, a a type of war zone. I guess maybe that's not so accurate, but it never ever really because it's so close and because they they share a, a huge culture with ourselves. Yeah. And it's not Iraq or it's not. Afghanistan or it's it's just across across the water yeah was, was that was, was it strange was it what, what was your what was it like actually being there and, and just to do your job but having to yeah it was it was difficult Kareem you know I've, I've had friends that were killed there I've seen some things that you don't want to see and, and, and at that time uh, it wasn't called a war and and the reason is the government couldn't afford to have a war in the UK. Yeah. So they never gave it a war status, but yet soldiers that served there got war medals. Right, okay. Yeah. Because of trade and the Americans, all this. So they called it the Troubles. Yeah. Remember? Yeah, a little, yeah. Bit of, yeah. a little bit of trouble. Where there's more people killed there uh, on. Uh, anyone there, I, work, so I did some work with the Northern Ireland Veterans Association and all the reports. And on any one day there, there's more people and more bombs and stuff going off than there were in Iraq or Afghanistan. Mm. Uh, there's been a lot of research done and, and it wasn't reported in the, in the, in the press. And because obviously the, it dragged on for that long, people have lost their appetite for it, which they do in wars. Um, and the Iraq, the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war was uh, a good example of that. But also, um, 
I remember sitting in Belfast one night and and I was listening to all the bombs going off and it was just, I, I, I sat there thinking, nobody in mainland UK knows this is going on. And it's so sad that people's lives are getting affected and you know property damaged and everything and people killing each other. And you're like, the, I just, and then I could go from that to getting on a, an airplane and I could be having a pint in the pub in Manchester an hour and a half later. Yeah, that, that, I think that's the point I was trying to make, that it's so, yeah. it's so uh, far away from us, but not geographically, and then you're yeah. across the, 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 the water. I mean, we spend a lot of time in, in, in Southern Ireland uh, through the, our Taekwondo experiences, and the, yes. the joke is that you're, you're there oh, using the aeroplane quicker than you could drive to Manchester, for example, from Glasgow. Yes. Or even Edinburgh sometimes, uh, yeah. it's so close. Right, so, after your service with the military police, uh, do you know, I nearly said things start to get interesting, which is so contradictory to what I said at the beginning, because I think all of this fascinating, hence why I wanted you to come on to the podcast. But uh, So, how, how, did, how did you make or find the transition from uh, serving in the military to moving into more of the... The, the private sector, how did that come about? Well, it was it was difficult to create because when I left the military, I kind of said, I'm not going into security. I didn't want to do it. So I, I got a couple of jobs and uh, my trade is a sheet metal worker, boil maker. Okay. Uh, and, and that's what I did in South Africa. And that's why I did a four year apprenticeship in, 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 uh, in, in a place called um, Rosendale, which is north of Manchester, the Rosendale Valley, beautiful place. And I, uh, I tried, and I just couldn't hack it. I just couldn't do it. And and I and I really did try. And things were different then. You didn't you didn't get. There's no help. There was no um, there's no resettlement process. Um, uh, there was no help with uh, post traumatic stress. There's none of that. And so really you were on your own and literally on your own and social media wasn't like it is now so keeping in touch with people was a little bit different challenging yeah of course Especially with all your friends are being posted all over the world every two years 18 months yeah. so I, uh, I i just couldn't settle down so then a friend of mine who i uh, served with in northern ireland he was an officer had taken over a big security contract for Mohammed Al Fayed, the guy that used to own Harrods. Yeah, of course, yeah. And somebody gave me a shout and said uh, that was happening. So I called him, Paul, Paul Hanley Greaves, and he said, Look, come down to London. Um, I've, I've got a job for you. So I went down to London, saw him, and I started um, working for Mohammed Al Fayed on, on, on his close protection team. Okay. I spent just just short of four years on that on that contract, which was really really good. Yeah, the, fantastic contract. I mean that when when we had the when we had the chat beforehand, I, I I'd said to you I, I I enjoy having people like yourself on the podcast, and I always want it just to be just to be a chat. Uh, but one of the one of the, the things I'd mentioned to you was. Going back to, to my childhood, I guess, uh, and you have, where were you when this happened? The two main things that I remember really clearly were the, the Twin Towers attack in September. Yes, yes. And yes. then, obviously, Princess Diana passing away. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and again, it's, it's maybe due to the, obviously, the Twin Towers, due to the, 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 the impact worldwide, mm -hmm. and then possibly... Princess Diana passing away because, uh, just because the person she was, and my mum absolutely adored her. I, I was obviously young at the time, but I remember it actually having an impact on on my own mother and just how how it had sort of touched her. Uh, so so let's have a, a wee chat about that if that's okay, because I know that yeah, 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 yeah. the 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 work through. Uh, well, I get, is that right in saying that that's how you? Uh, got that assignment to work with Princess Diana through uh, El Fayed. <coughs> yes, yes. So uh, what happened was I was in Saint-Tropez and Princess Diana and the boys, uh, Harry and William, they came to stay and they stayed with us for 10 days. And I looked after her and the boys and obviously the family. Yep. 
um, for that period of time. And I got I got a lot of exposure with the princess, and I and I did quite a bit of work with her, uh, which was just an incredible experience. A beautiful woman, lovely woman, and the boys as well. And, but it was just a job because we were, we were used to seeing really high net worth individuals coming into the family that we would look after and, 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 and work with. But at that time, Corinne, you were right. She was probably the most famous person in the world at that time. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people who were a bit younger, they don't understand that, you know, she was the most important person or the, the best known person on the planet. Yeah. So we had a massive job to do and, and you know, it was just an incredibly difficult time and uh, got to know her and got to know the boys very well. She sent me a lovely letter after thanking me personally for looking after her and, and, and just that in itself was just very humbling, lovely woman. And, and then, of course, um, shortly after she died in, in, in the incident in the tunnel, and uh, it was a massive impact on everybody's life at that time, uh, and mine as well, because uh, Dodi fired. I spent four years with him. I spent more time with the fired family than my family. Yeah. So I knew that that family, like my family, and interestingly, um, Omar fired, mm -hmm. who was the same age as Damon, my boy, then. Yeah. Um, so he's very young. And I spent four years with him. Uh, about four weeks ago, he friend requests me on Facebook. Wow. Okay. And I say, and I send him a message. I said, Omar, wow, what a, you know, great young man you've turned out to be. Because I looked at his pictures, uh -huh. and he sent me a message back. I said, Lee, thank you so much for helping me develop as a young man. I owe a lot to you. Wow. How cool is that? It, it's 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 amazing. It's so cool, and it's it's. It's surreal at the same time. I mean, the the it's surreal for me sitting here chatting with somebody who had such an important part to play such a such a position with someone as famous as that. Uh, mm. I mean, it's even with with like a, an actor, for example, or a famous singer, the they have that they have that fame, but a lot of the time it's restricted to people who like their movies or people who yeah. like a certain type of music, for example. Yeah. If somebody like Princess Diana, as you say, you were protecting and working very closely with the, you're right, probably at that time, the most famous person or woman in the world. What's the mentality like when you're doing a job like that? I can't even imagine it. I can't even yeah. imagine how that would be. So. For someone who's been there and, and done it, yeah, it's difficult, Kareem. And, and I've done some more challenging things. You know, you know, later in my in my uh, bodyguard or post protection career, but it was massively challenging. And and the effects of the death was challenging for the team and the family, and for me as well. And it was uh, when you're doing your job. It's th this is interesting. Uh, I can draw a parallel, Kareem, uh, to the to the fighting, because when you're fighting in, in, a, in a tournament, it's a game. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, you're playing a game, a sport. When people can't get their head on that, and they lose, their, they get the crazy head and they start fighting, yep, yep. with the close protection, you've got to play the game, the game of close protection. Mm -hmm. If you start fighting in your head, you'll lose the plot, you're gonna be so disciplined. Yeah. And, and, and you can't lose your concentration for a second, exactly the same as competing. And that's why I, I owe a lot of my skills to martial arts. You know, I really feel it's a real massive part of my DNA. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a massively disciplined life that you have to lead. And um, yeah, it's, uh, and of course I was involved in the, the coroner's inquest, which came years after. Um, which was un an uncomfortable experience for many, many reasons. I mean, we can discuss this on a, on a separate podcast if your listeners are interested. Yeah, of course. Yeah, there's yeah. so much that went on that the public will never know. And, and there's some, some I can't even speak about, and I never will. But there's, there's a lot of stuff 
that that went on that was kind of brushed under the carpet for various reasons, and I, and I understand that. I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all, yeah. but uh, there's a lot went on, and there's a lot of players in the game there that uh, I just find incredibly interesting, and, and a lot of a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. And wherever I go in the world, wherever I go, and, and they find out some, everybody asks me about the princess. Yeah. As I say, yeah. I, think, I think that's just to do with the, 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 the magnitude of, of who she was and, and the magnitude of the, the, the task that, and I know, I, I, know I, I fully understand what you're saying regarding you having more difficult, possibly even more dangerous tasks that maybe we'll move on to in just a wee second, but it's just the magnitude of the situation, I think, that people must find, must find out. Oh, it's incredible. And I'll give you, and I'll give you an indication just shortly after, after the princess died and all the rest of it. And of course, Trevor Reese jones very, very good friend of mine. So, you know, that, that was upsetting in itself. And, and I, I carried him to, to Dodie's grave. And he'd lost, he was, he was my size, he's a big guy. Yep. And he was like carrying a fucking child, you know, he was smashed to pieces. And well, thankfully he survived. And, uh, and I remember later I went to America, my brother lives just outside in New Jersey, okay. and works in New York. And my brother was working in the Twin Towers yep. and he worked for Morgan Stanley. Uh, and uh, and the, the, there's a tale of the Morgan Stanley, um, uh, um, uh, Scholar, uh, who got them out and all the rest of it, and he was in, um, he was a, 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 from Cornwall, great guy, Rick Riscola, and there's a, there's a book out called We Were Soldiers Once and Young, and there's a film called We Were Soldiers with Mel Brooks in. He was a major player in, in the Vietnam War. This guy's a legend. British soldier, joins the American Army, goes out there, comes back, goes to the Twin Towers, looks after Morgan Stanley. I'm going about an hour now. My brother worked for Morgan Stanley. He did a, a security risk report on the Twin Towers and said, right, if the plane hits this, the lot will collapse. Wow. Read the book. It's insane. He goes up and down, up and down, and he evacuates all the, his company, goes up last time, and it dropped when he was in. This guy, what a guy. But anyway, my brother changed jobs days before that attack. And he was in New Jersey going to the train when all the smoke and the debris came out under the tunnel out on that side. And that was a, you know, he was so lucky. But uh, I went into his office bar at the bottom, uh, near the bottom of the Twin Towers shortly after the, the, the death of the princess. And my brother, he gets excited. And at that stage, nobody knew what I did. Uh, my my cover has been blown now because I did a lot of press coverage for Mohammed Al Fayed. Yeah. So I, you know, so my my uh, my, my personal security to be blown up, blown apart. So I, I'm okay with that. I wasn't then, but I am now. So my brother said I'd gone to the toilet. He come back. He told everybody in this bar that I'd been Princess Diana's bodyguard, right? And I came back and I could see something had changed in the atmosphere. It was a busy place. Kareem, I had a queue going out of the bar of people wanting to shake my hand. Yeah. At that time. And I said to my brother after, I said, you ever do that again, pal, <laughs> we're fighting. Yeah. I was like, I had to leave the bar. I was quite distressed, you know. But that's how famous she was. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I like to think it was me that was famous. It wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you might be a wee bit more after this, Lee. Who knows? <laughs> uh, right, okay, so, as I say, it just seems to get more and more interesting, your, your story, and when, maybe maybe when, when the book comes out, and as you say, we will, we'll, we'll get together again, because there's so much yeah. stuff that I still want to get into. Uh, I know the, 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 the private work that you've done, security work, over the last few years has been in, sort of, not just North Africa, but in a number of places through. Mm -hmm. Throughout yeah. the sort of continent, uh, what 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 can you tell us a wee bit about the, 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 the what that work involves and right okay um, so I've done quite a bit of work in Nigeria and and Libya and Somalia and re more recently in uh, in Saudi Arabia 
<clears throat> I've done quite quite a lot of work um, in Libya and for different different companies and, and on different projects as well. So I've been quite lucky. I've done some really interesting projects, but the project in Somalia um, was was very demanding, and I was working for uh, an oil and gas company who were doing the seismic um, testing out there to get the, the oil heads in. And I, I was there on a training team. I trained up about 500 of their special forces. There was four of us on this training team through a, a very specialist company from Hereford. Uh, and so we trained up all the protection force and I deployed on operations with them as a, a um, a mobile security manager, as you will. Uh, so that was a very, very interesting project, and we had to evacuate. We were get, we got attacked by um, by the uh, the terrorists and militias, and we had to evacuate uh, in quite a hostile environment. So we got everybody out to Djibouti, and then um, and then we escaped, and that was quite hairy. Uh, but 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 that was towards the end of the project. But the project was really good, and all ex all ex military guys on the project, South Africans, Brits. Um, so uh, and then um, I've, I've done a lot of work in Libya for the British government, for the EU, and for for another uh, British uh, um, unit called the Stabilisation Unit, who go in to stabilise war zones. Okay. So I went in after the war uh, to, as a protection force with, with me and my guys to look after these people to try and stabilise the country. Yeah. And, and that was a great time, Kareem, actually, because because uh, Gaddafi had just gone and the people were happy and they were they loved the Brits there. And it was just a, a really really interesting place to work. You know, it, it was a mess, yeah. but lovely people, lovely lovely people. Uh, and that was a, a couple of tours doing that, which was really good. And then, and then I went back in with the uh, EU, the European Union Border Assistance Mission, and, and I was the, led the protection force there. And we were um, trying to firm up the borders of the country to stop the terrorists coming in the land, sea, and air borders. Yeah. And then that was when the second war happened. <laughs> And I was uh, unfortunately part of that. I was in the middle of the Battle of Tripoli Airport and really, really hard times, very hard times. And then we, were, we evacuated, I evacuated um, half the mission up to the border with Tunisia, the Rajasthan, yeah, yeah. Uh, through the war. And then I had to come back and get the rest, which was a challenge. And then I finally um, escaped. Uh, the same route because we had uh, ISIS and Al Qaeda pushing in, and 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 it's a failed state, as you know. It's yeah. you know a failed state for the beautiful people. I, I, I just realised as I was listening to your, your your story there that I'm just sitting here saying yeah 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 as if as if my wife had just come in and told me what had happened in her day working in the car garage, and I, I know that <laughs> I know that you're I know that you're. And I thank you again for, for coming on today because I know you're really busy at the moment. But uh, let, just before we finish up, let, let's have a wee chat, if possible, about just about that mentality. Because as I say, my wife Tracy will come in. How was your day today? Well, this happened and this happened and this happened. And, and you do, you say, yeah, yeah, that's great, that's bad. You're, you're talking, <laughs> I'm laughing, and it's, it's maybe if you don't laugh, you'll cry, but you're, you're talking about escaping from a, a country uh, and, and trying to get people out to safety under threat from ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And, and I'm just sitting here saying, yeah, 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 as if it's an everyday experience. It's obviously not an everyday experience, but how do you... I, when I was researching for the podcast, I, see, I seen a story you were telling about one of the times you'd, you'd literally flown back from a zone like that. And then I think you had... You had a grading for some of the children at your martial arts school. Yeah. And you were sitting saying, I can't believe that I just landed two hours ago and I'm now back to a normal life. How, how does one gain that ability to, to move from that to being home again and watching Coronation Street or whatever? Uh, 
<laughs> I don't I, I don't know Karim is the answer I don't know I remember that particular occasion and, and that was a very testing one I still had the red dust of Africa in my boots yeah and because that was quite a, a hairy one uh, but I don't know I don't know Karim I, I think what, what what I do is I have lockers in my head yeah and I know it's not healthy and I lock stuff away in the certain lockers and I can access them when I want. And I've taught myself to do it. And yeah, I suffer from post-traumatic stress. Um, less and less. I've had, I've had a lot of counselling and, and stuff like that. But the people I work with, we're all the same. We all get it. We all suffer. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of the pe people listening to this will suffer from some of the stuff they've done, the jobs they've done and, and stuff like this. So, um I'm, I'm, I'm very um, fortunate. I don't suffer as, as a lot of some, some of my friends, quite a few of my friends have killed themselves. But um, it's just, and I think the martial arts training and training as a fighter helps you, um, helps you focus and, and hide things and, and be very selfish. And I said to my boy, you know, he's just retired from the Olympic team. Yep, yep. Uh, I've taught him to be selfish. And I said, to be a top class athlete, you have to be selfish, son. When you finish being a top class athlete, then you can be the normal then, but, but until then it's all about you and you've got to put things away and, and hide them away and, and, and really focus on that. And, and, and now I can see the change in him now. He stopped fighting. Mm -hmm. He's thinking about other people and he's, and he's being normal, which yeah. is great. Yeah. And I think that experience of the martial arts and, and competing at such a high level has, has given me skills that I've just kind of taught myself, to be quite honest, uh, Karim. But uh, yeah, an interesting. My wife Kate, and, and you know Kate, she, she's she's like my Wonder Woman, and she. Uh, I remember, and I remember in, in Libya, uh, on one of the jobs I was on, because I've done quite a few years out there, and. Uh, and I remember outside, there's a big firefight going on, and there's rams going down, and there's explosions going on, RPGs flying around. So I'm in my room, and I'm doing a, I'm doing a, a FaceTime with her. Yeah. And she says, she says, what's all that going on? I said, oh, sorry, sorry, I'll shut the door. <laughs> she said, no, I don't want you to shut the door. I want to know what's going on. I thought it was the noise that was bugging her. Yeah, and it wasn't. It was the fact that we were in the middle of a firefight, and I didn't comprehend that because I had that every night for the past two weeks. Yeah. So for me, and, and I think I think Karim, the the human, uh, the hu being a human, you're very resilient, both mentally and physically, when when you're put in a, in a position of danger, and, and the more you're exposed to it, the more resilient you get. Uh, if it's managed correctly, some people just break down. But eventually, you, you get more and more and more resilient. And, um, and interestingly, I went back to, uh, to Libya in the end of 2016, beginning of 2017, to, to do some work for the British government. And I was asked to go out and do, do it, and, and, I, and I did it. And when I got there, I wish I hadn't, because the, the war was still going on, and it was quite a bad experience. But I made a diary, a video diary, every day. Okay. And, uh, and what I said, and I, I was looking at this last week, because I'm doing, looking back on stuff from my book, mm -hmm. and that in itself is very challenging mentally. And I haven't seen this since the end of 2016. And I was watching, it was very upsetting actually for me, and I had a bit of a breakdown. <clears throat> but what I said was, on my video down, I'm making it to Kate, because I know it's going on the iCloud in case I don't get back. That's why I'm making it. <clears throat> so I say, I didn't want to come here, and I know that within weeks, I like being here, right? Yeah. Fast forward six weeks, so I was there for eight weeks. Fast forward six weeks, it's me going, this is great. It's not too bad. So I change yeah. very quickly. And you know what? That's the thing with, uh, with, with, uh, with danger and things like that. Very quickly, you can get used to it and manage it. Mm -hmm. And that's the way, that's the way we are as, as human beings, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, ju just, just to finish, I, say, I, I promise I won't keep you too much longer, but the, on a much lesser scale for people hopefully watching this or, or, or listening, 
even just try to make improvements in your life for, for, for any purpose, whether it be a new fitness regime or, or, or even making yourself uncomfortable joining a martial arts school or, or whatever. Stories like you're telling today, one of the things that, that jumps out is how resilient we are as human beings. And mm. just, if you can get used to being in a, a, a zone of complete destruction the way Libya is at the moment and has been over the last few years, surely the human body can get used to waking up at 6.30 in the morning and doing a half hour cardio before you go to work. It's just about getting into that mentality and, 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 and getting used to pushing yourself a wee bit. Is that... That's right. I think, I think it is, Kareem. I, I do a lot of mentoring. I do a lot of training of military guys going out into these zones now. Uh, and um, and I do a lot of mentoring in the sports still. Um, and what I say to people is, um, look, you know, you, you go in the gym and you train your body or you, you go in a pub and you, you do whatever you're going to do. How, how much time do you give to training your brain? How much brain training do you do? How much reading do you? How much self-development do you do for your brain? And 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 you know, I try and tell people you can do anything you want to do, anything. But what you've got to do is you've got to you've got to invest time to get your brain to change from old habits or habits from when you were a child that, that are making you make decisions now. And they say, don't let the child become the father of the man. And they say, you know, what's gone in the past has gone in the past. That's past. What are you going to do now? What are you going to change your life in the future? How are you going to do it? Don't tell me you can't do it. You can do anything you want, anything. But what you've got to do is you've got to want to do it. And once you want to do it, and then you set your mind to do it, and you and you do your daily, you know, manifestations or your, your daily incantations or whatever it is you do, or your meditation or your prayer, Whatever it is, if you focus on you not achieving your goals, but focus on you living your goals and how it's going to change your life, then every day you'll do things in line with that. Yeah. And, and that's why I think prayer and things like that. Now, I'm not a religious guy, by the way. I'm a spiritual man. Mm-hmm. And I spend a lot of time with, with Muslims. Yeah. So I've, I've got wonderful Muslim people, friends. You know, and I've studied... I studied the Quran and, and I studied the Prophet and all that stuff. And when I see some of those guys doing their prayers every day, yep. uh, and they're doing exactly the same. They're, they're thinking about what they want to do, how they want to contribute to society, how they want to be a better person. And do you know what? Um, however you do it, whether it's prayer or whether it's you've got to do something, otherwise you, you're just like a ship with a powerful engine but with no rudder, just going round and round in circles. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, I think you can do anything that you put your mind to, anything. That's my belief. Brilliant place to end it. Uh, I think we've just, yeah, we're, we're, we're right on time to, to what we'd scheduled. So, uh, yeah, that, that's a brilliant, a brilliant place to end it. So what to do is uh, just promise me you'll come back on when the book's released. That'll be fantastic. Anytime, Colonel. You know, for you, anything. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, Lee, uh, so so much obliged to you. Thank you. I will let you go now and, and have, a, have a brilliant day. All right? Yeah, you too. You too, okay. brother. God bless you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank Take you. Care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.